I think fighting it as a war is really hard to reconcile with what the New Testament says about what our weapons are. Our weapons are prayer and kindness and gentleness and service. And none of those are weapons of conflict. And so it also isn't clear to me that the New Testament calls us to win the culture, never mind the people, mm. or get a hold of the levers of power in Washington and Hollywood and impose righteousness from above. Those have never seemed to me to be anything that the New Testament authors are asking people to do or even think about. Uh, <laughs> they're asking them to be faithful, to preach the gospel, to search the scriptures, and to love each other. So. I think it's important for people my age not to ask the next generation, not even ask, let alone put pressure on them or make it a test of whether they're serious followers of Jesus, that they are pointing out and condemning sinful lifestyles. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. If you've been enjoying the podcast, would you take a minute and log onto your favorite podcast platform, rate us, and leave us a review? It would be a tremendous help, and it allows others to find us easily. Leave us a review, and perhaps next episode, we will mention you on the show. Cancel culture. When I say that phrase, I am aware that each of you listening will have a different response. Primarily, we see a divide in understanding and response across generational lines. As Christians, we seek unity among our diversity. Different generations, different cultural backgrounds, different socioeconomic positions, and so on. But how can we listen to one another and appreciate one another? and love one another, and learn from one another, particularly with a challenging subject as cancel culture and all that goes along with it. I have invited my guest, Dr. Bill Davis, to help us think through cross-generational conversations, and in particular, those that center on this issue of cancel culture and culture wars. Dr. Davis has a unique perspective as a college and seminary professor, as well as a Sunday school teacher for elementary students, as well as people in their 60s and 70s. Dr. Bill Davis is a professor of philosophy at Covenant College and an adjunct professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, and he's an elder in the Presbyterian Church. He is a deep and compassionate minister of the gospel and a guest that we're honored to have back today. Now, on to our candid conversation. Well, today my guest is Dr. Bill Davis, a professor of philosophy at Covenant College in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and a professor at RTS Atlanta, and most notably, my first professor in seminary. No, that's least notably, I think. Uh, and uh, for those of you who can't see him, which is probably almost all of you, he has shaved his beard uh, after 30 years. 35 years. 35 years. Beard. Yeah. So I'm looking at a very fresh-faced 
Dr. Bill Davis, and we're so glad uh, that you were able to make some time to talk with us. And uh, this is your second time on the program. We talked Mm -hmm. on the important, serious topic of suicide last, discussing when um, the Netflix series 13 Reasons Why came out. So, Dr. Davis, it's always such a pleasure to have you on Candid Conversations. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's great to be with you. Well, and today we're talking about cross-generational conversations which is, I don't want to make this like a, a big label, but I think it's an area where churches could be doing better. I don't want to say it's a failure because I think there's some churches that are doing a fantastic job of it, but I think we can always continue to grow in this area. And um, it's helpful because you are working with older teenagers and uh, young adults, sort of 18 to 22 or so at mm-hmm. uh, Covenant College. And whenever you and I talk about the things that your students are talking about, it's always so profound to me. You know, it's I'm not even aware of those deep conversations at that level, at that age group, of course, having little people in my house. Um, <laughs> but it's eye opening. It's helpful. And so the, the things that we're talking about today, cancel culture. This is obviously a, a big buzzword, but it is very much a reality. Maybe help us think a little bit about cancel culture and then how your students view it, understand it, interact with one another on topics like this. Uh, If you think about them as a lover that you're pursuing and not a problem that you're trying to solve, you'll end up having conversations that will mean the world to them and you will find them delightful. You'll also discover that your influence on the next generation dramatically expands if you will pursue them like a lover because they will want to hear more from you. And then they might start asking questions. It's profound. And and I don't think older generations think about this. I certainly don't. But as it relates to hiring, to being an employable person Mm -hmm. in the future, look at all the, you know, Fortune 500 companies, they all take a stand on sexual orientation, gender identity issues. And so they're finding posts, right? So-and-so made this post 25 years ago. They're now canceled. They're fired. They, you know, and they've lost all connection. And, you know, everybody's written them off. As, right. Uh, so there's, there's two layers to that. One is there is the very real threat and a, a, I think a genuine and legitimate source of anxiety for younger people who are active online, who are involved in social media. It yeah. is a reasonable thing. There's nothing snowflakey or crazy or lacking resilience about having serious questions about whether a post that you innocently made today later coming to run afoul of some newly discovered norm among the, the people who make those sorts of decisions. And it isn't us um, of that being grounds for you being excluded from an opportunity, from um, a position in graduate school, from, Um, an employment opportunity, just being fired, an internship that you might want because people are now doing, and whether or not this makes sense or not, people are uh, reviewing what they can of your online presence in order to understand what kind of employee you'd be and whether you'd be a threat to the reputation of the business. Because nobody wants to be surprised by you've had working for you for the last two years, this person who said this truly awful thing 15 years ago. They don't want that. That's a reasonable threat. It's also um, a kind of threat that somebody my age, I'm 62 years old, it's a reasonable threat that I never had to deal with. 
that no one could, and no one would take it seriously. It was, in theory, possible to get a hold of uh, something that I wrote as a senior in high school. Maybe I wrote um, a uh, newspaper or something, Yeah, a school newspaper article that said horrid things about Jimmy Carter. Like, because I was in high school, I didn't write such things. I do not want that on my record. It's but just an example. Yeah, but suppose that I had, and and suppose somebody wanted to injure my social prospects by showing that to my employer. 40 years ago, my employer would just find that funny. Yeah. <laughs> right? That would be, yeah. you've got to be kidding, because yeah. nobody would count that. Back, back right. then, things you said 15 years earlier were irrelevant. Right. And it was because nobody else was looking to see the de facto social acceptability score of the business where I work. Nobody was looking. Well, there are people now who have made careers out of digging up, of finding the information needed to shame a business and shake them down for, well, something. I don't know if it's money. I really don't know how that whole thing works. But there's a fear that businesses have. And so my 22-year-old college students, that's a reasonable worry. It's probably not the, the heart of their worry about cancel culture. The heart of their worry is about being shamed in the social media spaces, of being labeled a hater, which is the worst possible label to have attached to you. And I have students who love Jesus sincerely and who are spiritually mature beyond their years, who still will go to great lengths to avoid being labeled a hater. And it isn't because they don't love Jesus. They just know that they will be in no conversations. Yeah. <laughs> and if they're going to reach out, if they're going to join with other people in order to serve the lost or to serve the, uh, the powerless, if they're going to join with those people, they can't have the hater label. Mm. And if they're going to be part of conversations about Jesus at all, they can't have that label. And so they don't want to be excluded. Nobody likes being excluded from a group of people whose attention you want. The closest I've ever come to helping people my age understand what this fear of being shamed feels like is I say, so um, how many of you are a member of of a country club or of a golf club or you've you've got some group you'd like to the Kiwanis Club or the Rotary Club? You like to go and it's something you look forward to. These are your friends, your reputation with them. It matters. It matters to you in your business prospects. It matters to you in your sense of whether the world is okay. Yeah. And suppose that somebody took something you said and wrote it in on a gigantic poster and put it up in the main meeting space of your club. <laughs> yeah. You know, a, a picture of you kissing a political figure that you despise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not hard to imagine being shamed at your club. Well, the entire social media space is their club. Yeah. Now it's tempting if you're my age, it's tempting to say, like, don't go to that club. Leave. Yeah. Go join a new club. Um, Okay. Just ask yourself if you're in your sixties, how many clubs have you quit (laughs) just because you thought that it wasn't worth meeting their expectations? Right. We don't do that. Because we've come to understand the way the world works and where we fit and why we're important in terms of these sets of people 
that whose opinions we care about. That's what social media is for 20 year olds. It's a place where your reputation exists or it doesn't. And I don't think it's reasonable for us to say, we've got our clubs, we understand how they work, we figured out how not to offend them, uh, but we think it's wrong for you to have clubs. <laughs> or, like, wait, if, you know, wait two decades and join our club. But then they've yeah. got two decades of waiting to go. Right. And it could be that they've looked at your clubs and said, these are people who have hardened their hearts against all of the needy people in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to be part of that club. The club, the, the subset of social media, whose those opinions are people I care about, are people who care about things that are important. Yeah. So I don't think it's reasonable to tell them to get off. I think they should be less dependent on the affirmation of the social media club just as I should be less dependent upon the good opinion of people who are not at my church. Right. You know, the clubs that I might be part of. Um, I've, I've had to work at caring less about the opinion of the professional philosophers club. There is sort of a de facto guild mm -hmm. of philosophers and graduate school is really good at making you think that if you are a pariah to that group, you failed as a human <laughs> And I've had to care less about that. Yeah. Uh, less. I still care. <laughs> but I've had to care less because it's inconsistent with saying what needs to be said about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. So I think we all are dealing with the same set of problems. There are people who we would like to keep as our friends. So those are the two levels of cancel threat. So canceling is just the practice of using the tools that you have to shame into silence or to wreck the career of. It depends on the level of meanness involved. Right. And it's a really effective weapon. There were comparably effective weapons when you shunned people in Puritan New England. Yeah. <laughs> if you just wouldn't have anything to do with them, Th those were also quite effective. I don't think it's a new kind of thing. I think it's just a new tool, but it's also done on a mass scale in a way that couldn't be done before. So it's new in that sense. The scale is new, but the practice is not new. And it helps me to be patient and seek sincerely to understand my students, people my students' age, say, what in my life is like that? And what do I wish someone would say when I was afraid of being pushed out of the crowd, pushed out of the set of friends? What do I just say somebody who's fearing that reasonably? Because I think they do reasonably fear those things. Mostly what people need to hear is, wait, I'll be your friend. Hmm. Not you need to change so that you're not making my life hard. <laughs> it's um, like, I'll be your friend. Let's spend some time together. That's been my experience is that when, especially when older people reach out and it's really hard to schedule events with young people, even though they've got, you know, apps on their phone that tell them what to do and their phone is never very far from them, but they're super reluctant to set up a time because they do wonder. I think in this case, I wish they didn't wonder this so much. They wonder if something better will come up Yeah, and right. they, they don't want to close down those out. possibilities. I do think there's more of that than when I was in my twenties, but if you can set up a time with them and then 
show up when you say you're going to. And if they don't, don't think that it's an insult to you because, you know, uh, they forget. People forget things. It's not an insult. Just keep pursuing them. So in the cancel culture uh, discussion that I had with my students uh, just two days ago, their central question was, have you ever been canceled? And if not, what could you be canceled over right now? Well, I did tell them some things, but because I don't know who all is going to hear this, I am. it doesn't seem prudent to me to describe things that I might say that would run afoul of generally accepted sensibilities on, you know, on the Internet. <laughs> but I, I told them some things. And they could see that, yes, there were threats associated with voicing opinions about that. I told them what my opinions were. I said, but I don't post them online. Because the people online, first of all, are not my responsibility. It's not my responsibility to teach them how to think. And they're not asking. Right? If I push it out there when it's not asked for or I'm not, that's not my clear responsibility. I'm teaching at church or I'm, or I'm getting paid to teach college classes. There I think I have to say, here's where I am and here's how I got there. Mm-hmm. What do you think I missed? So to get the students to say, we didn't end up there. So what happened? So they wanted to know, did I, did I know what it felt like to be worried about having something I said or posted come back to haunt me, which was really interesting. They weren't interested in the political part of it. Yeah. They weren't interested in the grand culture war feature of it. They weren't interested in what it means for public epistemology or any of that. They wanted to know, did I know how it felt to be afraid? Mm of that kind of thing. And that told me what they want is they want people to acknowledge that there's something objectively scary and that we want to be alongside them, not just telling them to be different. Yeah. That's what I learned in the conversation. Unafraid. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to tell them to be unafraid because I think there are bad actors out there that want to hurt people using the, the new tools for hurting people. Yeah. Um, It was a sobering conversation because at first I thought they want to get me to say something that they can then use to complicate my life. They want blackmail. Right. Then I realized that that was was really unfair to them because they've never done anything. That group of students, we've been talking about difficult things all semester, and that group of students has never retailed anything that I've said in that room. They haven't posted anything online about it. They haven't told other people about it on campus when I've said things that I find troubling that are out of step with you know, popular opinion. So by this point in the conversation, I should have known better than to think, hey, wait a minute, how is this a trap? <laughs> but I didn't. And I think that that was also part of me being overly concerned, like more concerned about protecting myself than having a genuine relationship with them, one that hears them and understands what they're finding perplexing or even scary about the world. Not so that I can tell them there's nothing to be afraid of, but just so that I can understand them. The first thing that's coming to my mind is what are the things that, uh, and we'll use, for example, your students, what are the things that they're afraid of being canceled for? So obviously there's a, a need to be 
articulate and clear so that something can't be twisted and put out of context. Sure. We've kind of talked about the overall arc yeah. of cancel culture, but no. like what are what are the nuanced aspects that are striking at the heart? Sure. That's a really good question. Thank you uh, for focusing in that way. My students report, they're not getting it from me. They report pressure from older believers that, and especially their parents, but older believers who want them to be more vocal in their condemnation of sinful lifestyles. Hmm. Only it's not an equal opportunity condemnation. The older Christians want the younger ones to openly condemn homosexual practices. And so some of these, the more uppity students say, so how many of you are openly condemning greedy lifestyles <laughs> um, or adulterous affairs that you know that are going on or people who are just involved in uh, really desperate struggles with pornography? How many of you are pointing out to your friends? Mm. That's making Jesus sad. Mm. Uh, they say it's really easy for people to identify a set of sins that they don't struggle with and then tell their children to go condemn people. And what they think is happening is that their parents want to know that their children, that the young people are on their side in some larger cultural struggle, a struggle for the soul of America or something. I now think that that struggle Okay, I could get canceled for this, but not by people who are online. Well, it wouldn't be called candid for nothing, would it? Yeah. Um, I think fighting it as a war is really hard to reconcile with what the New Testament says about what our weapons are. Mm. Our weapons are prayer and kindness and gentleness and service. And none of those are weapons of conflict. Mm. And so it also isn't clear to me that the New Testament calls us to win the culture, never mind the people, Mm. or get a hold of the levers of power in Washington and Hollywood and impose righteousness from above. Uh, Those have never seemed to me to be anything that the New Testament authors are asking people to do or even think about. Uh, (laughs) They're asking them to be faithful, to preach the gospel, to search the scriptures, and to love each other. So I think it's important for people my age not to ask the next generation not even ask, but let alone put pressure on them or make it a test of whether they're serious followers of Jesus, that they are pointing out and condemning sinful lifestyles. Better question, much better question is, are they pursuing holiness in their sexual lives at age 22, which I happen to know from experience is harder than when you're 62, whether you're married or not, it's just harder. But that's what I see in my students. They are. Uh, They're not pursuing heterosexuality. They're pursuing holy sexuality the way Mm. Christopher Yuan says, that's what we're after. We're not trying to turn our children into heterosexuals. We're trying to turn them into people who are serving Jesus with their sexuality. The Bible condemns all sexual intimacy that isn't inside of a marriage between a man and a woman, just to make clear. It's not like your audience is going to be foggy about this, but they might wonder what I think. And the Bible is really clear about that. So I don't say not heterosexuality because I think homosexuality is okay. It's not. But none of my students think that homosexual practices are healthy or pleasing to God. They know that they're offensive to God. But their questions are, how do I love 
someone who has heard the clarion call of the world that wherever you find sexual satisfaction, that's where you'll find your identity. Mm. How do I love somebody who either because they were mistreated or just because they stumbled into it when they were weak, uh, they believe that their identity is as somebody who can only find happiness with someone of the same sex. What do you do for them? Well, um, pretty sure that the conversation isn't a terribly long one. If you start with you're a miserable sinner, God hates you. <laughs> Would you like to come to church? Yeah. Yes. Please come to church with me. Now that I've said that I'm kind of happy that you're on your way to hell. <laughs> uh, what a great conversation starter. Right. Now a much better conversation starter is, so who's your favorite Marvel superhero? That actually is a pretty good conversation starter. Yeah. And if you don't have an answer, let me just tell you the right answer is Iron Man. But <laughs> I say that to myself. Because he's self-sacrificing. Yeah. Um, he's a redemptive character. But I am. In, well, it's, it's one of the things I do to, to uh, start my relationship with my students is I tell them some, some things like that. Yeah. I have a favorite Marvel superhero. And they can't believe that I know even know what that is. <laughs> um, I don't think I'm pandering because I've seen enough of the Marvel Cinematic Universe to have an opinion about this. But the students also know that I didn't go trolling in the Marvel Cinematic Universe just because I found it delightful in itself. They know that I went there so that I could understand them yeah. and understand how they're making sense of the world. Yeah. And it means a lot to them. They are way more patient with the when I get it wrong, and I get it wrong a lot. <laughs> they're way more patient with me because they know that I've made an effort. I haven't done all that could be done. I've made an effort to understand what moves them, what gives you delight. And then you discover that what gives them delight is Dungeons and Dragons. And it's like, oh, no, there's an investment. Um, but if that's what gives them delight, <laughs> then... Uh, I'm going to learn how to do it so that we can talk about much more important things. That's the beginning of a relationship where I can say, this is what it means for me to pursue stewardship of my money in a way that pleases Jesus. But that's not the first thing you talk about. The first thing you talk about is what do you find delightful? Hmm. We are not young people's therapists. We're their friends. That's what we should set out to be is hmm. their friends. Let's talk about the world that you grew up in mm -hmm. and people in their 50s to 80s who may be listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I mean, even the world I grew up in, in you know, almost my 40s, it was a very different world than this sort of younger millennial Gen Z mm -hmm. environment they've grown up in. Why are the older people just like this? So why are the older people hung up about sex? Because humans are hung up about sex. <laughs> <laughs> so that's always been true, right? So when I was in my teens, it was the 70s. Everybody, the old people were still just uh, really, really anxious about whatever happened in Woodstock and the summer of love. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they were really happy. The older people in my life were really happy when I would condemn that yes. and say that I was committed to waiting until I was married to have sex. And they liked that. It was true. Um, but it wasn't a huge temptation as I remember it, but it was very important to the older people that I was denouncing the sexual revolution of the sixties. Right. And so the sex and sexuality being very close to 
our understanding of where the cultural fight is yeah. and especially the disconnect or tension between the older generation and the younger generation. I think that's just a universal and what's happened more so now than when I was in my teens and twenties is that it's been tightly joined to political positions. Yes. Which means that not only do you have people's anxieties about uh, their own and other people's sexual behaviors, people think that they're going to lose political power, social power, or gain it depending upon who's on their side about sexuality. Because now when it turns out that somebody is inclined to be patient with somebody who's struggling with same sex attraction, a number of people are worried that, oh, they might not vote for the right person. And they're going to, speaking of canceling, they're going to cancel out my vote. Yeah. Like I really need those votes. And I need to know that the Christian young people are voting the right way mm. and hearing all of this uh, compassion for uh, homosexuals or immigrants is just evidence that they're not going to vote the right way. Mm. I think that things have been made worse, both by the multiplier effect of internet, electronic media, digital media, whatever that is. It certainly makes it faster to aggregate a crowd and to make it appear that there's huge numbers who are with you or against you. That's way easier. Uh, there's also blessings out, right? The gospel can go to the corners of the earth. We should not just lament it. But it's a force multiplier. It means everything seems to matter more and sometimes does matter more. But when I was in my teens and 20s, we didn't think that sexual attitudes made any difference in who had power. And now we do. Yeah. And the church, I think, and I'm guilty of this too, I think we in the church have wrongly come to believe that we need political earthly power in order for Jesus to accomplish his purposes in the world. And we don't. If anything's clear in the New Testament, nobody thinks they need to get a hold of the Roman Empire and make a Christian Caesar uh, in order for Jesus's gospel to go forth and for his kingdom to be made manifest everywhere. And the more power you have, like if you're my age and you've, you've got the kind of power that comes from having some money and some security, and you remember a time when your political party got to call the shots, you think that really the only way I can be happy, the only way that Jesus can be happy is if we get political power, no matter what it costs, no matter what it means for the clarity of the gospel or <laughs> our own consistency, <laughs> right? We think we have to hold on to it come what may. And then when other people, whether they're my children or the same age as me, when other people care more about compassion than they do about power, well, they're just a threat to me. Mm. I need all of them. So you're disappointing me. It's not just that you've got views that I can't agree with. It's that you're costing me power. I think we need to do way less worship of earthly power. Mm. Although it's very, very hard. I have to say, for my own part, I really don't like it when my team loses. Yeah. Well, and you, you in the conversation we had last week, you were talking about, uh, you know, some of the younger generation that's leaving the church. Mm-hmm. And some of your friends of your students, the reasons that they were giving, they had to do with power. If you could sort of fill that in a little bit for us. Well, it looked like the churches were making decisions based on political alignment because they knew of other like-minded 
political people, and they really wanted to have the church do things that showed that they were on the right side of that fight. And they didn't go to church for that. I have some experience of this in the other direction. (laughs) Um, I remember in the 80s thinking about leaving a church because just too much was said from the pulpit about nuclear disarmament and how important it was for us to turn our swords into plowshares. Like, Mm. come on, like, that's too much politics. And I thought that. Imagine how offended I would be now if I thought that mixing politics with the preaching of God's word was wrong. It's Mm. really hard to avoid. I would imagine you, Jonathan, uh, disappoint people in passing over opportunities to say really clear things about political outrageousness when a passage seems to scream. (laughs) This is aimed particularly at this politician and their bad ideas, right? So you're and you're supposed to do that from the pulpit. But I think young people in general don't want politics mixed in. And it isn't just young people. I don't want it to become what we're doing. We're not gathering to celebrate our political unity (laughs) uh, because our unity in Christ transcends that. I mean, an awful lot of political disagreement is tiny, tiny disagreements that turn into big ones and you put budget numbers on them. And look, finding your identity in political reality, even if you're an elected representative, is not something a Christian should be doing any more than a Christian should be finding their identity and their sexual orientation. The young people notice that the older generation is comfortable finding their identity in their wealth and in their political party. And then those same older people turn around and say, how dare you make friends with people who find their identity in their sexual orientation. (laughs) And there's no better hypocrisy detector than a 20 year old. (laughs) They start at about 13. They get really good at it, but they get more subtle as they come to understand adult motivations better. They say they, Mm. they see even more hypocrisy. So don't be someone who finds your identity in the wrong place and then criticize them for being friends with people who have their identity in the wrong place. Listen to them. I want to make sure I say this because I'm guilty of this and it's a huge obstacle to cross generational conversations. And that is to think that there's a small set of isms out there or that there's a whole bunch of characteristics that everybody in a generation is going to have. And that you talk to people long enough to figure out which of those failings they are. And as soon as you see the evidence that they lack resilience or that they're unserious about the right political things is you just up. I knew it. I was expecting in talking to somebody who was 22 years old, that they would be kind of foggy about how macroeconomics works and know almost nothing about geopolitical realities. And there it is. And then you write them off. But think how rightfully angry we would be if somebody assumed that someone our age was hard-hearted about the powerless, uh, was excessively putting their confidence in their own wealth, and was a Pharisee about outward righteousness. Suppose they knew that. Well, it turns out it is true about too many people my age. But I don't want any young person assuming that's who I am and just waiting till they see enough evidence that that's what I am. Because they're going to see it. (laughs) 
<laughs> and if they wrote me off after a five minute conversation as he's a Pharisee who puts his confidence in his wealth, or in my case, in my academic degrees or my public reputation, they'd be right about all those things, sadly. Um, but if they wrote me off on those grounds after five minutes, I think that's just, that's not fair to me. And yet I do it with 22 year olds all the time. And in both directions, it hurts the chances that we will understand each other and recognize that we're brother and sister in Christ and that we have a job to do. We, mm. Mm. Uh, what the body of Christ is supposed to be doing can't be done by any of us and probably can't be done by any subset of us. It's supposed to be done by us, mm. which means we should be seeing all of them as utterly necessary to us being part of Christ accomplishing his purposes. You had sort of given the example of the younger people were leaving because they, they saw, you know, why would I be a part of a place where it was just a power struggle to be unwelcoming to, you know, fill in the blank, anyone. So that's clearly something. And again, I don't want this to become like a, a beat up, on either, you know, it, I think what we're trying to do here is have a conversation about understanding the perspectives. You put it well earlier. What is it like to be you, <laughs> right? <laughs> and what I said earlier was that I, I feel like this is an area where the church isn't doing great. I'm sure there are places where it is, but certainly an area where we could stand to grow and to grow from one another. So getting these perspectives and understanding and seeing, again, like you just said, if we are a body of believers, we're united in Christ together, there's giftings that are are a blessing to the church. And if, if church just becomes a country club of everybody who looks, acts, and thinks the exact same way, that that's, you know. Yeah, or where we just outsource everything that we're supposed to be doing. We pay other people to do ministry. Yeah. <laughs> Instead what of what are we doing? Doing ministry. Yeah. I think the more that we do together where, where the issue is not, can we understand? I think we want to try to understand each other, but the best way to come to understand someone is to do something together. Don't yeah. stare at each other and try to figure each other out. Go do something. I teach a class that has a required service component. That is you got to go serve somebody in order to understand, in order to realize one of the course's objectives. And so um, a group of students and I went to help clean up a yard. There's a ministry that, that looks for people's properties that have, have received a notice that a fine would be imposed if they didn't clean up their yard by this date. And the ministry drives around looking for those signs and then gathers together a group of young people to go clean it up before that date comes. They ask for permission to come on the property. They say, we'd like to clean up your property. The people say, why do you want to help us? They say, because Jesus helped us when we couldn't help ourselves. That's what we want to do. <laughs> and so I went with a group of students to go clean up this yard. And it was quite a mess. But we were uh, we were cleaning up. And so I'm working alongside uh, three other strapping young men. And they can lift large things. And uh, I can't lift nearly what they can lift. And, and they're just happily trudging through the sticking mud and I fall down and get a little hurt. And they're very, they're very patient with me. I couldn't have done much of that, but we did it together. You know, I could take a corner of something. I could carry smaller wheelbarrows of things. 
Uh, but we also talked for an hour and a half about just everything, rambling, no agenda. Uh, somebody finds a bag full of Bic, empty Bic lighters <laughs> that, you know, cause they're going to be thrown away. And they start talking about uh, the time when they tried experimenting because, uh, you know, maybe not everybody, but most people, especially young men, have experimented with uh, something that you could smoke. And so they're talking about their experiments. None of them are smokers, but they're comfortable talking about what it was like to try it out, to know that it was probably a bad idea with their head, but know that they wanted to make sure they, you know, that they weren't a weenie. But I learned so much about them in totally unscripted, what we were doing was cleaning up this yard. <laughs> I learned a lot about them. I learned the sorts of things that they prayed about because they would just say, I've been praying about this and I'm starting to see some evidence that God is melting my heart about this kind of thing. So go do something <laughs> uh, and don't go where you're in charge. Uh, it yeah. seems to me that it works better if I'm just another one of the, the schlubs trying to make things happen. There was a site manager who gave us wheelbarrows and stuff, but I wasn't in charge. Yeah. I think what the scriptures call us to is for the younger generation, eagerly to seek out the counsel, not that you have to obey it, but to seek it out and take it really seriously. The counsel mm -hmm. of people older than you. Mm -hmm. And we haven't done that. That leaves a frustrated older generation that their wisdom and experience, which is not true in traditional societies. In traditional societies, the whole culture is built around honoring yes. the, the wisdom. wisdom of the elders. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we don't live in that culture. <laughs> no. Well, we, this is we, the whole boomer, millennial. Yeah. I mean, that's the grandparent, grandchild kind of right. So continuum. I, we're talking it, about. it would be nice. So there are real advantages to the traditional societies where you need the permission of the older generation in order to do big things, start a business, get married, permission. <laughs> Not yeah. just their input, but their permission. And the whole culture supports that. If you try to do something for which you haven't received permission from the elders, the whole culture will turn against you and denounce you for it. We don't live in that culture. What we live in is a culture where somebody my age needs to work at earning the interest, earning the curiosity of people 40 years younger than me. It takes effort. It takes some sacrifice. And we can lament that. And maybe there's something to lament. It is hard to know. I just think that it's kind of a waste of energy to do much time gritching about it. Because <laughs> that's not going to make it any better. Uh, it would be better to go. And even if it at some level of wrong, it's wrong that you have to work for it. Go work for it. Everybody's better off. They have the benefit of your insights. It's really fun when younger people listen to you and make choices. Well, it's affirming, but you also know that they're probably going to end up slightly less sad <laughs> about how things go because yeah. they had the benefit of your warnings. But look, but look, I tried that and that's not going to work. So, I think it's worth the investment. I have found it to be worth the investment. Being a college professor makes it pretty easy for me. Yeah. Um, I get they to already respect. Yeah. They respect me. They know they have to earn a yeah. grade. I can use that, but <laughs> there's a big difference between the professor that is just the sage on the stage who's respected 
but not sought out. Those are different things. Mm-hmm. And I think especially um, for an older Christian like me, what I want is for uh, younger Christians to come with me, not just listen to me, but to come. We've got stuff to do together yeah. where I will benefit from their energy. This is a great thing. Like older people don't have a lot of energy, not nearly not the energy that I used to. Younger people are full of energy. It's kind of nuts. But what yeah. they don't have is clarity about about how we, we've got time. What are we going to do? We're going to do that thing or that thing. Sometimes I just get stuck. Like there are so many options. I'm not going to do anything <laughs> right? <laughs> because uh, I, I don't want to make the wrong choice. Yeah. And by the time you're my age, you've made a lifetime of we must do something. Let's do that one. I've got good enough reasons to do that thing rather than that thing. And then let's just go do it because it's better to accomplish something. The world is really broken. Let's go fix anything is better than not fixing anything. So, or at least for today, fixing, not permanently fixing. But, and they come to appreciate that for what it's worth. They come to appreciate the, what older people have to offer them, which is they see more clearly what things cost and what might work. As we wrap up here, Dr. Davis, thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with us and and helpfully as we consider cross-generational conversations and the issues of the day in, in many regards. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It does help people to find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.